to The Disruptors, a series dedicated to individuals, well, disruptors really, that are closing disparities, changing the very fabric of our nation, or just making dreams come true all from ATL. This series will cover the advocates, unsung heroes, leaders, and more in mini-sos that are released every month. This summer, we're featuring the Firestarter, the Changemaker, and the Dreamcatcher. I'm India Hayes, the founder and CEO of Meaning City, a social impact tech startup that connects the homeless and homeless care providers to life-critical benefits. But this series isn't about me, it's about my fellow disruptors. So let's say you are a star athlete and you enter a race, the race of your life. You're equipped with all the right tools, you have the dexterity, the drive, the passion for the game, the speed to win this race. What if during this race, a set of tiny golden wings appear and adhere to the sides of your shoes? Before you know it, you take off and are propelled towards winning the race of your life. Was it the drive, the dedication, or the wings that helped you take off? I would like to introduce you all to Gerard Fleming, our dream catcher for the Disruptor series. While he is very humble, Gerard is, in my opinion, the wings that helps many individuals take off. I first met him while working, while he was working as a caseworker at a prominent youth shelter, and he quite literally was the lifeline that helped propel many youth out of homelessness. Now he's working as a philanthropic associate at the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, assisting with the allocation of millions of dollars of funding to nonprofit organizations. Funding. Now those are the wings that help you really take off. <laughs> so I just want to go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, again, Jerome, when I first met you, you were one of the very first caseworkers that Mini City had ever worked with. And you were probably one of our first champions. Can you describe uh, your previous role at the youth shelter and... Yeah, who you worked with. Yeah, for sure. First off, thank you for that amazing intro. <laughs> I almost got teared up within the first few minutes of the podcast. So I try to <laughs> hold it together. Uh, but yes, India, thanks for having me. Uh, so yeah, just uh, really briefly, uh, as um, you alluded to earlier, um, yeah, so I did work as a uh, crisis case manager uh, with the uh, Coming to House of Georgia uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, actually, it was my first job, just moved to Atlanta, um, in 2018 after marrying my beautiful wife. Um, and that was the, uh, the first position that I was able to step into when I came to Atlanta. Um, and it was a perfect, perfect transition because I was doing similar work uh, while I was uh, staying in New York City. Awesome, awesome. So, first of all, I did. I for some reason I thought you were from Atlanta. I had no <laughs> idea when we first met you. You had just moved here, and there was a totally new role for you as well. Um, I didn't really have this in my lineup. This is new, <laughs> but can you describe a little of what you were doing when you were in New York? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I spent a few years in New York. Originally, I'm from uh, Orlando, Florida, um, and I ended up moving to moving to New York in uh, 2017 to uh, earn my master's degree. Um, so I have a master's in uh, clinical social work uh, from the Silberman School of Social Work, which is uh, kind of in Spanish Harlem, um, associated with Hunter College, but not at the main campus, about a few blocks down. Um, and I essentially started working with the homeless population there, primarily just because it was the most major need that I've, uh, that I've seen while I was there. Um, I think if you look at a lot of the major cities in the United States, Los Angeles, New York, Atlanta, you can see that the homeless uh, uh, pandemic is like running rapid uh, throughout the streets. So just naturally with the um, the servant heart that I have, 
um, I saw the need and just wanted to step in and, and try to address it as best as I could. And about five years later, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm still in the midst of it. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. That was amazing. Um, and would you, I know in the time that I was um, working with Covenant House and many said I felt like the majority of our requests or, um, <laughs> you know, the most of the youth we were working with would say there's a process where you can note your caseworker. And they're like, yeah, I'm working mm-hmm. with Javad or Nicole. But usually it was oftentimes you for sure. So yeah. I know you were very busy, but on a typical day or in a typical month, how many youth do you think you were assisting or seeing while um, in Georgia or even in New York? Right. Um, so with New York, it was uh, a little bit different just because although I was serving the homeless population, it wasn't primarily youth. Um, during that time in New York, I got to work with uh, a lot of the, let's say like 45 and up population, um, which I really appreciated because transitioning to Atlanta, then primarily working with uh, 18 to 24 year olds, I was able to kind of see the similarities and the differences between those two cohorts of people experiencing the same thing is actually pretty interesting. Um, I know one thing that I learned that I didn't even think about um, as being a barrier for some people receiving services was that a lot of the reasons um, people may like to, let me not say like, that may be the wrong word, prefer to uh, remain in a state of homelessness is because um, they're comfortable with that position. They know how to navigate it, they know how to operate it. Um, And unfortunately, uh, our systems have kind of failed a lot of people in those areas. Um, Primarily a lot of women, they experience a lot of abuse in shelters um, from not only participants, but also staff members that they trust. Um, So taking uh, that knowledge and being able to kind of incorporate it with the younger generation that I'm working with at uh, that I was working with at the um, Covenant House uh, kind of allowed me to add an extra layer of um, assistance. But with that caveat, um, primarily when I was in New York, I probably worked with maybe about a caseload of 10 to 15 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas when I transitioned to, and that was with a, that wasn't a crisis shelter, that was transitional living, um, which if you work in the social work field, you know that makes a big difference. It's a lot more stable. You don't have the time crunch of uh, an exit date um, that you have to operate against. You have a lot more time and freedom to kind of get resources allocated and get them squared away for the participants. But, excuse me, but at the community, I mean, sorry, (laughs) Community Foundation, at the Covenant House, um, it is an amazing program, although it is um, primarily for emergency services, which means that they have a firm deadline on how long people can be there, which kind of adds an extra layer of anxiety to it. Um, And then along with that, the need is a little bit greater. So um, my caseload jumped from 15 working in New York to about maybe 30 to 32 um, working in Atlanta. Um, And again, that's all youth, 18 to 24, um, which is, probably the, the one of the most confusing times of your life when you're trying to figure out who you are and what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, abso- absolutely. You spoke on something um, a little earlier that really stuck out. You said this pandemic of homelessness. So many times 
you know, all over the news, all over the world, we're talking about this global pandemic, right? That's very rooted in public health, but also access gaps. It's heightening or revealing a lot of disparities in our community and just all over the world. But when you work within social impact, I'm sure you see this working in homelessness prevention or eradication that, you know, our nation has been dealing with the um, pandemic for a long time for not just youth, but just for many citizens around um, the housing crisis or being, un being unable to get access to critical benefits. And I think our listeners should really be aware. Um, I was just, someone was just uh, talking about how it's great what I do with Mini City, you know, yeah. getting, you know, individuals access to life critical benefits and all that stuff and identification. They're like, you know, these people just need to get their stuff together. Yeah. Like, why would you, you know, just choose? And I'm like, it's not a choice. There's mm -hmm. so many life events and things that happen where someone is propelled into a very dire situation. Mm -hmm. And then the truth of the matter is, uh, like you said, they are, it's not like they like the situation, but they have become very efficient or mm -hmm. comfortable with operating within being in the fringes of society because mm -hmm. society has failed them. Yeah. And a lot of folks just kind of have a, a view of the homeless as kind of one, paint them with one brush. They're all, you mm -hmm. know, experiencing this or that, or they're all, um, you know, have substance abuse problems. And many of them do have different traumas and things they're dealing with. But I know in New York and Georgia, you probably saw individuals that you could really relate to or resonated with. They don't all have the same story. So yeah, just wanted sure. to point that out. Yeah, it was definitely um, humbling working in that space because I'm a I'm a pretty young individual. <laughs> uh, so when I started at um, working at Covenant House, there were individuals on my caseload that were maybe only a year or two younger than me mm -hmm. um, that was kind of coming to me looking for assistance or rather coming to our agency looking for um, assistance and it was definitely a humbling ex experience for me because it showed me that if circumstances were different those roles could have easily been switched and I could have been the other individual on the side of that table asking for help um, and kind of going back to your point earlier um, just about life happen uh, happening that is honestly a lot of times what leads people to homelessness especially young adults um, I know primarily a lot of uh, I feel like we've all, well, we've all been teenagers before, so we know we have those moments where, you know, my parents just don't understand and, you know, they don't relate to me. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times that will lead uh, young adults to try to figure it out on their own, um, which will kind of cause them to, uh, to leave home. But uh, just kind of to your point earlier, I, I felt like that was good because it just kind of reminds me of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need. Uh, so essentially, I... I may not be able to focus on getting my documentation, maintaining a full-time job, um, and securing housing if I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight or if I don't know where I can get food access from or if I know where to get these things from but it's going to put me in a position to where I need to compromise my body, compromise my well-being, compromise my safety um and it's essentially almost like being in between a rock and a hard place absolutely absolutely and um you know I, I think you also said something that was really really compelling and i think our listeners also need to hear which is the fact that the roles could easily be reversed right people mm -hmm. it's easy to judge and say i would never be in that position or x y and z but really many times and i know People hear this stat all the time. Maybe you haven't if you're listening, mm -hmm. but most Americans are a paycheck away, of mm -hmm. course, from being really um, 
unstably housed or unable to access you know what they need or really a step away from homelessness and then during this pandemic right you're dealing with so many um, stressors financially mentally emotionally Mm -hmm. physically um, all happening at once and I think that really pushed you know uh, America's made up of a huge middle class Mm -hmm. but it really started to push the fringes of society and the middle class those lines kind of start to blur right Um, all of a sudden for a lot of us uh, on the mini city team, we started to see people who literally were just really breaking down saying, I did not expect myself to be in emergency housing or I owned a restaurant. What am I doing here? Like the sheer shock. But I think what that showed was we were all very close and in precarious positions. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that our nation needs to work on. Yeah. But, you know, that's 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 what happens. But I really love your background and your story because, like you say, you do have the heart of someone that's a giver, that's very compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, but with your current and past role, would you consider yourself someone that's a dream catcher? Don't be shy, you know. <laughs> but do you feel like you help individuals? You know, help realize their their uh, different goals that they have, milestones they want to hit. Are you asking in general, or just my current role? Um, I would say in, in I mean, we'll get to your, your current <laughs> role for sure, because I know in that sense you're absolutely um, helping people net some huge missions. But um, I would say, yeah, in general, do you feel of that way? Yeah, I do. Um, for those who do know me, I'm uh, kind of like a jack of all trades. Um, I I really love and appreciate uh, entrepreneurship, um, like individuals that are able to literally have a dream in their head put it on paper and then bring that to life i have like the utmost respect for so like usually whenever i see a a friend or even a spouse because my wife uh shameless plug she's a a day of coordinator so if you if you're looking for her for someone to help you on your special day uh reach out to us um but yeah when, when i see someone that's that's pushing and dedicated to making something happen for themselves if i'm in a position to assist or help i want to be a part of that because i feel like genuinely um that's one of the reasons why i'm here i feel like that's my my purpose in life is to be a servant um so that is something that i try to incorporate in my um natural everyday life but also um you know in my profession as well which is why i'm in the field that i'm in now um so yeah i hope that answers your question yeah yeah no absolutely i think it's very if anyone were to meet you in person or even listening to this podcast it is very genuine and authentic Mm -hmm. i think of when mini city was first launching we had the small pilot with covenant house um it was before the pandemic Mm -hmm. no one was really investing or they were like this is a really great idea you know tech to help the homeless but yeah you know we have our own ways of doing things much to your same um point people kind of are in a stagnant place that are like, we'll just use what we do use. It's yeah. fine. This is nice. But I feel like you and also Nicole were mm-hmm. the first caseworkers who really were like, this is phenomenal. Yeah. You guys really did not know us. It was like our first day <laughs> <laughs> and you were so present, but also like, yeah, I think everyone should do this. And how can I? And I was thinking to myself, this person probably when So if someone hears, OK, I have a caseload of 10 or 15 or 30. Mm-hmm. You have to remember those are 30 unique lives yeah. and stories. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine having 30 little cousins yeah. <laughs> who are like, I need help with this and I want to start school and I need mm-hmm. this. And then the ups and downs that come with being at that age. Yeah. But I was thinking like, how does he have time to do a caseload? Because I think you're a great caseworker because the youth would just go on and on. Thank you. And like, Gerard, you know, just ask him <laughs> and this and that. But um, 
how does he have time to do this and champion us? And also, <laughs> you know, I think you have other stuff. I know you're married to your beautiful wife. I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I think, though, when it's a part of who you are and mm. in your spirit naturally, it probably comes effortless. There are probably some days that where you're tired, you're like, no, it's not effortless. But <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I think, honestly, I think working in this uh, in this field, um, you you have to have a layer of uh, of personal drive and commitment like if you if you work in the nonprofit field you know at certain levels you're not doing it for a check <laughs> like you're literally doing it because you're invested in the work and you care about the people um and I think for me it was just literally every day um coming in and saying like hey like this person needs my help today like how can I show up for them and not um not fail them and even um being straightforward and transparent like I remember there were plenty of times when I was sitting down with individuals and they were like look like don't sugarcoat anything for me let me know like what resources you can give me how can you help me how can you not help me so that way all the cards are on the table um and I think once you are able to be in those positions to where you're personally invested um and you are laying that foundation of of trust and transparency um, the people on the other end of the table are a lot more likely to, to trust you and, and allow you to go along on that journey with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's a huge thing, just being transparent when you're working in the, I guess, the vision, business of compassion or care. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it's very easy to want to sell the world. I'm like, yeah, I can promise and do all these things but it's a lot better just to be like you said present and authentic like this is what I can do mm -hmm. this is what I can be here for and that is that means the world to many people but um I would say there's so many stories I can think of but what's one of mm -hmm. your favorite stories of a youth leaving the program or um getting on their feet that you really love can you share one with us yeah yeah for sure uh so there was a young man that came into our agency excuse me are you okay uh, like I said, he uh, a lot of the a lot of the kids there were very close in in age to myself, um, and just for context, I was maybe twenty twenty five at the time, um, so about like a two to three year difference between the majority of the the kids that were in my caseload there. Um, so this young man came in, and uh, essentially, like I was alluding to earlier, he ended up. Um, he ended up becoming homeless because he was struggling with uh, undiagnosed mental health, um, and he wasn't able to gauge it. He didn't recognize it. It was his first time having an experience, um, and he didn't necessarily understand what it was or understand what was going on. So he was fully stable, uh, fully uh, maintaining a job, had his own housing and uh, everything, and then one day just had an episode and just kind of, kind of spiraled. Uh, so initially he ended up... Uh, at, uh, at our location at the Covenant House, um, and we just started uh, working him through the program. Usually when individuals first come in, uh, they have a stay that's called the respite stay. Um, so a lot of individuals may come and be like, hey, I don't necessarily want to join the program, but I just need a few days to you know get back on my feet, maybe take a shower, uh, explore the clothing closet if you have it, and then I can be on my way, uh, which we understand. Because at the end of the day, although we may want to help them get to that level, we have to meet people where they are. So if they aren't ready for a very um, elaborate and structured program, uh, we don't try to force that on them. We just try to meet them where they are. Uh, so this young gentleman, he came into the program, did his three respite days, and decided that he wanted to stay. Uh, so we worked him through the program, which essentially lasts about 90 days, so roughly uh, three months. Uh, and he worked that program really well. He was compliant. Uh, he was able to get 
uh, his mental health addressed within the first two or three weeks being there because he was able to meet our um, our site team, uh, which a lot of the time, um, even if someone that may be homeless is available, that I mean is aware that they have those struggles, they may not be able to address it or meet those needs because they don't have the resources, they don't have the funding, they don't have the knowledge to know like, okay, like where do I go? Um, to do this instead of just going to like an emergency room and then you get hit with a, a major bill at the end of it. Um, so yeah, basically he, he worked on a 90 day program, uh, excelled in a whole lot of levels, completed the majority of things on his case plan, which is basically like a personal um, goal sheet for lack of a better term that uh, he sets himself, he decides what he wants to accomplish. Um, and I may challenge that like, you know, uh, appropriately uh, just to kind of be a level of accountability for him um, and help guide him along that process. So he did that really good. Uh, he ended up being a, an ideal candidate for our transitional housing program. So he entered into that, um, which then gives him, uh, uh, I don't want to misquote, but I believe maybe two to three years um, to decide like, okay, you know, this is, everything is a little bit slowed down. He doesn't have that 90 day clock on him. So now it's like, okay, you know, how can I, you know, work this program, like slowly and build things together. And then eventually he was able to um, transition back with his with his parents. Um, they had a, a little rough falling out previously, but through our uh, family counsel counseling that we were able to provide for them while he was in the program, we were able to lay that groundwork while he was in the transitional housing program to transition back into that placement with his family. So not only was he healthy, he had his own job, uh, he was doing school, but he also had reconnected with his family. He had the um, the support systems around him to make sure that he can maintain that level of uh, of success that he gained while going through the program. Wow, that is an amazing, amazing story, and just sounds uh, like it highlights so many pillars of support mm -hmm. that maybe listeners aren't aware of that shelters and caseworkers provide from family resources to, because a lot of times people think, okay, you offer them a place to stay and they get their cells back together. Okay, that's it. But this is really almost, I would say, in looking at different homeless citizens we've assisted, the ongoing theme many times is like isolation. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like groups like Covenant House, um, caseworkers like yourself, they would step in and become those pil pillars of support, but also almost like a family. Yeah. You guys are surrounding them, covering them in empathy, understanding, also finding out, like you said, how can I challenge you? I know these are your goals, but mm -hmm. how can I make sure you're accountable and hitting those marks? That is, that I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Thank you. So I know we talked a lot about your previous position um, and, and things you've done, but can you tell us about your current position and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a uh, philanthropic associate uh, with the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, uh, which uh, essentially, if you haven't heard about us, so we're a nonprofit, um, but we're not your traditional nonprofit. Um, so <laughs> we're uh, primarily uh, a nonprofit that uh, leans on learning and inspiring um, more philanthropy. Uh, within the, the city of Atlanta uh, with the intent on uh, increasing uh, the different resources and opportunities um, that is available for maybe a select few of people uh, to the widen uh, variety of individuals that make up our region um, and our city. Nice, nice. Yeah. So um, 
what you you I think what a lot of people if they are aware of your organization because y'all are not the traditional um, nonprofit <laughs> yeah. is probably like funding. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you guys help so much stepping in and allocating funding. Um, what would you say? So I know the need for funding mm. is probably immense during the pandemic. We know it was immense even before then, right? Because we worked within social impact. Yeah. But for individuals, for organizations, or entire entities that are assisting the homeless, um, there's so much need for funding mm-hmm. or resources, not just dollars, but also resources, um, mm-hmm. public like support and whatnot. Well, how would you say the allocation of funding has changed during the pandemic? Is it more plentiful? Is it scarce? Is it like uh, everyone's like hitting you guys up for resources? How does it feel? Yeah, um, so I guess I can answer that from, uh, from two perspectives. And for the first one, I wanna go back to what you were saying earlier, just about um, the, um, and you didn't use this term, but it kind of popped in my mind when you said it, but kind of like the pandemic being one of the, like a, a great great equalizer of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially individuals that probably would have never have been um, in a homeless shelter are there because of the pandemic. So I think through that, our, our giving um, from, our, from our gracious donors that we partner with in this work that we do, uh, skyrocketed. It went up maybe 20% uh, compared to wow. uh, previous years. Um, and we were able to allocate about uh, $172 million in funds uh, to different um, organizations and nonprofits that uh, were doing, um, pro- or rather providing services and opportunities during the pandemic. So that would range from different organizations being able to um, continue to provide the services that they were doing all the way down to uh, organizations operating in new spaces that you know maybe they never did before and they needed additional funding uh, for and a lot of that looked like um, essentially like just meeting people where they are so providing rental assistance um, providing uh, utility assistance um, providing um, transportation assistance meals on wheels assistance um, especially for our elderly community even now um, I, and which is unfortunate because um, our elderly community kind of tends to get overlooked a lot of the time or forgotten mm-hmm. a lot of the time mm-hmm. um, and they were um, the that certain population that we felt I feel like definitely got hit by the pandemic earlier on and are still kind of feeling the effects of it uh, even to the point now where there's still hesitancy about you know going out shopping going out doing you know their, their normal routine or some of their um, gathering uh, programs or day services programs still not being 100% open or at capacity yet because they're still trying to eyeball the pandemic and the effects of it. Um, so to answer your question, the the given ha- has increased um, and the philanthropy work has, um, has broadened because I believe that, um, you know, our donors, our stakeholders in the community are realizing like, hey, this doesn't just affect, um, this doesn't just affect people across the way this is affecting my family members this is affecting my loved ones and even if it isn't affecting me um i'm in a position now to where i can emphasize uh, emphasize and i can relate and i can uh so show sympathy because I'm, I'm seeing it day to day how this is affecting people so even if i'm not living in it personally i'm able to see like hey this person is being affected by this i'm in a position to where i can help how can i do that Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm really happy to hear that. I, I think I saw that a lot with the organizations we worked with, um, a lot of foundations that the capacity for giving increased to meet the need, which I was really thankful for. Because mm-hmm. I felt like there's there's never enough, in my mind, enough programs, enough government systems. People sometimes think 
those in need will be cheated the system. And it's like, yeah. there. what are you talking about? There's First of all, there's not enough resources to go, go around, period. But if there is a huge need or people are going to extremes, it's usually for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And so with that being said, what obstacles do you see organizations that work in social impact face when they're trying to access funding? Do you see like a, any patterns or themes? Um, well, so speaking of full transparency, <laughs> I think uh, especially with uh, with the way that our how things have just been going in our nation um, over the past year and a half uh, with the pandemic and also with um, the racial injustice, um, I believe the, uh, the foundation has just been doing a period of self-reflecting to see how much of an impact our philanthropy is making and how we do philanthropy. Um, like those things matter, um, you know? And I think that with us moving forward uh, and trying to make sure that our philanthropy uh, reflects <clears throat> our, our stance that we're taking on being more committed to, uh, to racial equity, um, we wanna make sure that our, our programming, the organizations that we support um, and how we allocate our dollars reflect that. Um, and traditionally, we haven't always done done that uh, with spreading our um, spreading our funds to uh, organizations that um, are maybe smaller, um, maybe at, uh, more diverse. Uh, so we're doing this period of self reflection and really trying to make sure that we push the needle and and make it um, make it a priority to be more inclusive in our grant grant making and grant giving. So with that being said, um, I do think that some of the barriers that some organizations do face um, when they do approach us uh, for funding is the name, right? So some organizations that do know us know that, um, you know, this is, they kind of look at us almost as like a really big like entity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we do have a a certain um, process um, that you know individuals have to go to to receive funding for us. So like tradition, uh, like for example, if I started a nonprofit doing um, like clothing drives, right? Like me, me and myself um, and some friends, right? We have our five hundred one c three. You know, we're certified. We're able to do it and receive donations and whatnot. Um, traditionally, because of the amount of funds that we allocate, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the times. Um, the the s- smaller organizations may reach barriers or have barriers with receiving funding from us just because uh, we want to make sure that we're providing them with the opportunity to make sure that when we give them the funding they can actually manage it properly and use mm-hmm. it properly mm-hmm. um so uh in some cases it's just that maybe our foundation may not be the best fit for them mm-hmm. uh but what we usually provide in that step when those um um situations happen is uh, different um, uh, um, supporter programming. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have a program called Catch a Fire, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically used to help more smaller organizations kind of get the guidance that they need on building up their uh, their organization, learning how to uh, grant write, learning how to uh, properly uh, apply for funding, things among that nature. So that way, once they are able to build out their infrastructure a little bit stronger, mm-hmm. uh, they can be able to either approach us for funding or approach other foundation, uh, foundations or other organizations for funding um, along the way. So that's one of the, uh, I guess, major things that stand in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we've been trying to just, again, diversify how we 
interact with our communities uh, that we serve, with the nonprofits and the stakeholders in those communities, um, and how can we meet them where they are um, and make sure that we're providing them the best service and helping them set, set themselves up for success. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I didn't know about the structural programming and support you guys offer. I think that's really key because a lot of times groups will get overlooked, whether it's a nonprofit or maybe even a startup because they are really, really early, right? And they yeah. might not have the tools or the ability to manage. If you've been having an operating budget of 10K and then you apply for a million, you, how are you going to allocate? What, yeah. With what capital, with what structure, and um, what re- reporting, what metrics are you measuring? It mm-hmm. can Sometimes it can be to a detriment, right, when there aren't certain things in place to help manage that. And I think that's something really key to point out. But I love that um, y'all's foundation actually helps bring that programming so they can be in the place to receive it and implement. That's yeah. great. Um, awesome, awesome. I felt like this was such a, a great, uh, uh, I guess, episode that touched on many things. I thought yeah. we were just going to talk about your current role and other stuff, mm-hmm. but as always, you know, I'm asking a million things about, <laughs> you know, your <laughs> no, pre- no, how no. I made you the previous role or whatnot, but this is great. I think a lot of the things in other um, guests that we talked to mm-hmm. is this idea of, you know, it feeling like a time as a founder of color or um, someone working in social impact, a person of color, like, okay, there's so many brutal and tense moments happening that have been happening mm-hmm. in our nation, right, for centuries. But through social media, through news coverage, through, you know, the prevalence of seeing um, just really violent or horrific things repeatedly mm-hmm. and things that we stand against or we are not um, really keeping silent about, sometimes it feels like the focus on the black community is kind of trendy, right? Yeah. Sometimes it can feel that way. When will, how long will this last? Another guest had said, listen, I'm going to take this interest and this focus that I'm mm-hmm. getting from other foundation or investors or whomever and really make the most use of it because I don't know when it's going to go away. Yeah. But I love when I see foundations like you all because it's an idea that there can be a legacy. It doesn't have to be reactionary. Yeah. This is, and you, you're, you're being transparent when you say, hey, we know we have some points that we need to work on, but at least it's setting up a legacy so it's not always so reactionary. Yeah. Um, for sure, for sure. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you again for speaking with us today. I love the episode. I'm so glad you got to share your story, what you're doing, what you're continuing to do. Um, I'm really in awe of you. The whole Mini City team is. And thanks again for sharing your time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Of course. Awesome, awesome. Soundcheck music by Urban Nerd Beats. Visit us at minicityatl.com and follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review. If you didn't, please go on about your day. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Stay safe out here, disruptors, and continue to shake the mold and close the gaps.